1: A native Alaskan village is suing 20 of America's biggest energy companies, blaming them for the damaging effects of global warming that are forcing the villagers to flee their homes.
2: I think this case could be a breakthrough. It'll take the same kind of breakthrough we had with tobacco. I think climate change may be at a point where we could see a similar breakthrough, and this case may be it.
1: Also, a new cash crop out on the range for cattle ranchers: carbon
3: credits. It's an extra bonus that's needed for many of, of agriculturalists that are are spending their lives and and working hard, putting their sweat on the land. And messages from
1: the deep: the songs of whales are changing. have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the Arctic melts, the coastal village of Kivalina in Alaska is falling into the sea. Soon, the 400 or so Nupiat that live there will have to pack up and move out a dislocation they say could cost up to $400 million. So they are suing for moving expenses. The defendants are two dozen energy companies, including ExxonMobil, BP, PBD Energy, and American Electric Power. The villagers charge the corporations with creating a public nuisance and of conspiring to mislead the public about climate change. Cavalina isn't alone in asking the courts to deal with damage linked to global climate disruption. Connecticut has sued power companies over its eroding coastlines. And California wants six automakers to pay for erosion as well as water problems allegedly made worse by car emissions. Federal trial judges have refused to hear the California and Connecticut cases on the grounds they are, quote, too political, so the cases are on appeal. To explain the Kivalina case, we turn now to Patrick Parento, a professor at Vermont Law School. Hello there.
2: Hello, Steve. How are you?
1: Good. Um, Tell me, what exactly is a public nuisance uh, for you lawyers?
2: It's a very old doctrine, uh, which basically says one person can't use their property in a way that unreasonably interferes with another person's use of their property. And in this case, of course, the Kivalinans are, are essentially saying you're destroying our entire community. As a result of the greenhouse gases that you are emitting, you're doing so either deliberately uh, and uh, intentionally, or you're doing it uh, negligently. But either way, you're responsible for the fact that we're now going to have to move our community at, at at a cost of several hundred million dollars. Uh,
1: Professor Parento, I drive a car. I take hot showers. We use electricity here to run the Living on Earth radio studio. Why don't the residents of Kivalina sue me and, and Living on Earth for our activities?
2: Well, they sue the companies that have the deep pockets. That's the answer. They're, <laughs> they're looking for a recourse to the companies that have the money, the wherewithal, to actually pay for the damage that they allege they're causing. And uh, it's true that uh, you could file a class action lawsuit against a much larger Uh, number of potentially responsible parties, that is, people that are responsible for greenhouse gas emissions. But common law, the the doctrines that the Kivalenans are using in this case, basically does allow you to cherry-pick. It allows you to pick out the largest and the wealthiest and say, you're responsible, and you have the means to deal with this problem, and so we're going to hold you to account.
1: Now, these cases are perhaps somewhat reminiscent of the class action lawsuits against the tobacco industry in the in the 1990s?
2: Yes, very much so. And the claim that the Kivalinans have made that the companies deliberately set out to deceive the public about climate change and continued to expand their operations and put even more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, knowing that there was pretty strong science showing that those emissions were having an adverse impact on sea level rise and other things. All of those allegations are very similar to the kinds of allegations made against the tobacco companies several decades ago.
1: These lawsuits are often uh, dismissed and they're certainly criticized as being too political. What What do you suppose is meant by that?
2: The courts want to see the legislature, either the United States Congress or perhaps state legislatures, enact some laws to give the courts some guidance on how to assign liability for something as massive as climate change. So the judge in California dismissed the lawsuit against the automakers on that basis, basically saying we courts are not competent enough to try to decide who is responsible uh, for this problem. We, we want to see the political branches of government act first.
1: As we were preparing to talk with you, um, one of our editors said, what are the realistic chances of a case like this that Kivalina is bringing? Isn't this case likely to get tossed out of court at practically the first round? Why why bother?
2: This case has a lot going for it. There still are significant legal hurdles. The courts are going to have to decide that they can deal with these kinds of cases that these parties have a legitimate claim to relief, that they're not getting relief from the governments, and that they can only look to the courts for relief. I think this case could be a breakthrough. It'll take the same kind of breakthrough we had with tobacco, where the states finally brought a case after years of losing that won. And the reason they won is they said we're incurring these substantial costs for health care, never mind whether individual smokers can say that your cigarettes killed me. The fact of the matter is smoking in general raised the health care costs and the states got stuck with the bill for that and the states were ultimately able to recover substantial billions and billions of dollars for that. I think climate change may be at a point where we could see a similar breakthrough. In this case, maybe it.
1: Patrick Parentos, professor of law and senior counsel to the Environmental and Natural Resources Law Clinic. Thank you, sir.
2: It was a pleasure, Steve.
1: Renewable energy sources, wind, solar, and geothermal, are growing rapidly in the U.S., but the clean energy industry warns that growth could stall unless Congress extends tax credits set to expire at the end of the year. Venture capital investor Nancy Floyd.
0: The renewables industry globally will continue to grow, but the industry in this country will come to a virtual standstill.
1: What Congress does today will set the country's energy policy for decades to come. And that also means lawmakers will chart the course for our economy and the climate. They're getting a lot of advice, especially from the CEOs of some of the biggest companies. Living on Earth's Jeff Young tells us those corporations don't see eye to eye on America's energy future.
5: Energy was at the top of the agenda when the nation's governors met in Washington. They're worried. They see soaring fuel costs, environmental concerns, and charts that show projected demand for power curving upward like a mountain with no peak in sight. They invited the leaders of major electric utilities to weigh in on what's in store. Dominion CEO Tom Farrell was not encouraging.
2: I am not an alarmist by nature. I do believe, however that our nation is headed for an energy train wreck.
5: The wreck Farrell sees coming is when booming power demand bumps up against any aggressive global warming laws. Dominion has energy customers in 11 states. It's planning both a new coal and nuclear plant in its home state, Virginia. Dominion's also putting up some wind facilities, but Farrell has low expectations for alternative energy.
2: We all want a clean, healthy environment. But I urge you to beware of those who say we can have it for free, they are singing a siren's song. Next, the
5: governors heard Michael Morris of American Electric Power. AEP burns coal to generate three-quarters of its electricity in the Midwest. Morris plans a new coal plant with advanced technology that could allow it to capture CO2 and store it
2: underground.
5: He warned against any action that would cut the use of coal.
2: And the whole notion of delegitimizing coal is something that we should all be frightened by. Coal is our biggest resource and something that we need to lean on and lean
5: on as hard as we can as we go forward. The governors apparently got the message. They chose not to act on a modest global warming resolution by Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty. But the message was quite different at another energy gathering in Washington.
6: Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. It's a great pleasure to be at the third International Renewable Energy
5: Conference. Tony Hayward's company, BP, helped sponsor the year's biggest gathering of government officials and renewable energy businesses. BP invested a billion dollars in renewables last year and plans $1.5 billion in 2008, a lot of it in the U.S. BP owns the most wind power acreage and runs the country's largest solar equipment facility.
6: America is the world's biggest energy consumer, and any serious change in global energy consumption patterns has to begin here.
5: Hayward wants Washington to pass a law to put a price on carbon emissions. That would make cleaner sources, now much more expensive than fossil fuels, more attractive. Electricity from wind is now about 50% pricier than that from coal. Solar is from three to five times as costly as coal. A lot of companies are working to bring down those costs, including some not even in the energy business, like Google. The information technology giant recently launched a campaign that goes by an engineering formula, RE less than C. That's renewable energy less than coal. So we've set ourselves a pretty aggressive goal, which is to make renewable electricity from solar to wind to geothermal cheaper than coal. That's Dan Riker. He took over Google's energy initiatives after eight years in President Clinton's energy department. Google is putting engineers, scientists, and investment capital to work on potential breakthrough technologies in clean energy. And Riker sees a role for Google's better-known pursuits on the net. What can we do with Google Earth and Google Maps and YouTube to really get the word out about renewable electricity? I hear from folks in the uh, electric utility industry that we'd be fools to turn our backs on coal. What do you think? Uh, Can you envision uh, this country without coal in the near future? Coal is not going away anytime soon, but what renewable electricity combined with energy efficiency offers is the chance to slow down um, the growth of coal and to begin uh, to wean ourselves off existing coal-fired power plants. Google has big ambitions, but I wanted the really big business picture. And business doesn't get much bigger than GE. GE Energy's vice president for renewables, Victor Abate, says the company's invested billions in alternative energy and sees tremendous growth on the horizon. He expects wind, now just a little over 1% of the U.S. electricity mix, to be five or ten times that. Right around the corner, 2015, 2020. The size could be 5%, 10% without too much of a stretch in our view. Uh, Who's right here, the boosters on the renewable side or the the fossil fuel folks? Our view is that they're both right. We've, for the past 100 years, built a power generation infrastructure of about 1,000 gigawatts. The question is, for the next 100 years, what's the next 1,000 look like? And that mix, we think, is going to be dramatically different. You'll still need coal, gas, and nuclear, and we're investing in those, but the percentage of renewables won't be 1%. Want more windmills? GE can make them. And who supplies equipment for the coal and nuclear plants AEP and Dominion want to build? That's right, GE. It's one of the little perks of being one of the world's largest corporations. They profit no matter what energy course the country chooses. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
1: Coming up, Home on the Range, where the deer and the carbon credits play. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The United States may have opted out of mandatory limits on global warming gases under the Kyoto Protocol, but there is a thriving market in credits for voluntary reductions of greenhouse gases. Much of it takes place at the Chicago Climate Exchange. Running a political campaign that's racking up emissions from jetting around the country? That's okay. Brokers for the exchange can sell you carbon offsets, credits generated by operations that have reduced carbon emissions below the present norm. Many of these carbon credits come from collecting methane from landfills, planting trees, or installing clean energy such as wind turbines. And now cattle ranchers are cashing in as well. Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern has our story from Cameron, Montana.
0: Court Smith and Todd Graham know what it's like to feel a bit out of place. When they pull up at a ranch and tell the ranchers they pretty much want to pay them to boost the CO2 their land is already absorbing from the air, well, Smith says they're usually just crossing their fingers they don't get run out of the county. If it
7: doesn't sound like you're selling snake oil, I don't know what else would be. You know, I've got some air I want to sell, and so it's a very complicated system for your average person to grasp because it's just so new.
0: As carbon brokers for a company called Beartooth Capital, they work with ranchers to increase the amount of CO2 the soil on their ranches absorbs. Then, Smith & Graham sell credits for that CO2 on the Chicago Climate Exchange. As it turns out, the rangelands of the American West naturally absorb about 190 million tons of CO2 per year. That's about what 40 coal-fired power plants emit. It's a lot of potential, but to really explain how it works, they had to take me with them. Great weather today.
8: Oh boy
0: typical <coughs> We're about an hour and a half south of Bozeman, Montana, at the first and only ranch to sell credits to the Chicago Climate Exchange. Farm dogs bark, and a couple of horses in the corral look up as we come through the gate. It's called Sun Ranch, but today there's a blizzard on. Come
6: on in. Hey.
3: My name is James Stewart, and we are on the Sun Ranch. since Cameron. Montana. Right now we're down by Wolf Creek in my house. This is Emma. Emma. Hi, Emma. This is Christian. Hey, Christian.
2: Come on in.
0: (laughs) James Stewart manages Sun Ranch. Christian, his three-year-old, is all worked up because he's coming out for a ride in the pickup to show us what his daddy does. As we drive up into the rangelands of Sun Ranch, James Stewart's voice traces the land formations as he points through the windshield and drifting snow.
3: All right, this is about the middle of the ranch. Our property will go up from the foothills a ways. We have Wolf Creek to the north. We have Moose Creek coming down out of this big canyon.
0: And then- the ranch covers about 26,000 acres of rolling range, and the more grass grows, the more carbon gets pulled out of the air and stored in the soil. James Stewart now runs no more than 2,600 cattle, rotating them around the property throughout the year. He used to run twice that many. This ranch could afford that loss of income because the current owner came in with money to invest in making the ranch more sustainable. Todd Graham and Smith hope to get up to more than 10 times this many acres, signed on to the climate exchange this year. But a rancher can't just call up the exchange and say, hey, I've got X acres, write me a check. Joel Brown, a soil ecologist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, explains why.
2: There is a lot of work that has to go into the documentation of the productive capacity of that land, the current condition that it's in, the historical practices over the past, and then some agreements on monitoring and the kind of adjustments they'll make in response to changes
0: in climate. Brown is the guy the climate exchange went to when it first wanted to put a dollar value on CO2 in grasslands. And he told them not all grasslands are created equal.
2: A very important part of carbon sequestration is climate, in particular, rainfall. That rainfall is what uh, gets plants to produce. As those plants produce more biomass, more of it's transferred below the ground and can be stored as carbon.
0: Range in Kansas, for example, naturally absorbs more CO2 than in Montana or Wyoming. Brown and a team of scientists divided the country into regions and assigned a value to each one. The Sun Ranch falls in a region that absorbs 0.2 tons of CO2 per acre. I asked Michael Walsh, vice president of the Chicago Climate Exchange, to help me figure out how much money Sun Ranch gets for the carbon it absorbs every year. So I did a little math. um, 26,000 acres times 0.2, that's about 5,200 tons of CO2. Yes. So then where do I go from here in terms of calculating that check?
2: Well, the 5,200 tons are currently worth approximately $20,000 a year. Wow. Yeah, they're selling for about four dollars and twenty five cents a ton, and uh, you convert the tonnage into a sales price and uh, your check uh, comes after you execute the sale
0: twenty thousand bucks five thousand two hundred tons to the climate exchange that 's peanuts
2: now that said, it may be a small piece of the total solution set, but it can be a significant opportunity uh, for the uh, the landowner that undertakes these best management practices.
0: Sun Ranch got a check that about equaled a quarter of its annual income. And that wasn't peanuts to James Stewart.
3: It's an extra bonus that's needed for many of of agriculturalists that are are spending their lives and and working hard, putting their sweat on the land.
0: Ranchers are used to tight budgets, but in recent years, those budgets have gotten tighter. Many have sold their land to developers. Some feel pressure to graze too many animals, trying to maximize return per acre. Not surprisingly, the work is less enticing to younger generations.
3: Our average age of our agriculturalists are, you know, it's above 60 in the United States. And so we really need to work on on encouraging youth to get back into agriculture.
0: The Stuarts have worked hard to raise their kids to love ranching. So far, three-year-old Christian Stewart seems pretty happy helping Dad out on the range, even if it's just by shifting gears in the pickup.
3: Okay, shift for me. There you go. Daddy, you... Tell them all the the stuff that you've seen on this ranch. What are the wildlife you've seen? One mommy and uh, two babies. Mommy baby what? Bears. Oh, bears. What else have you seen? And a wolf. One daddy wolf. And a badger. And a baby animal. And a bunch of daddy deer. But how do you know if it's a dad?
0: It does. I just
3: taught one. What does it have? Horns
0: and stuff.
3: Oh, Horns and stuff.
0: Christian just got his first pony for Christmas because Mom got tired of having a backseat rider when the family was out herding cattle. He's a paint gelding that Christian named paint. The new rangelands program may never get off the ground, depending on federal carbon policy. But if it does, it could give Christian Stewart and other young ranchers the chance to have backseat riders of their own someday. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern in Cameron, Montana.
1: business generates a lot of climate-changing gases, but then so do individuals. In the UK, 40% of CO2 emissions come from ordinary citizens who are the end users of fossil fuels. So there are several proposals to give plain folks some direct incentives to reduce their carbon waste. One option is a carbon tax. You use more, you pay more. Another idea would be carbon allowances that people could sell if they didn't use them. At the Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research in England, Richard Starkey is working on a scheme called the Domestic Tradable Quota. Each citizen would get a sort of carbon debit card that would record exactly how much fossil fuel they use for transport and in their home. Mr. Starkey joins me now from Manchester, England. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. This sounds a bit like Big Brother.
9: Well, this is one of the objections that people make to this sort of idea. There would be this great big database everybody would have an account in this database, and that the state would be able to know when you bought your gas, how much you bought, how much you'd paid. And obviously, civil liberties in this country, as in the states, are very important. And so if a scheme like this was ever to be implemented, then there would have to be very stringent safeguards about how much data the government was able to collect on individuals and who was able to see that data. But I think you're absolutely right. Any scheme like this, if it's going to work, has to be privacy friendly.
1: So, under your scheme, I'd get something like, what, a World War II ration card? That would I mean I could trade that, right? If I didn't want to use the emissions, I could sell it to somebody else or give it to my cousin or something?
9: Yeah, that's a really good point you make. This would actually be very different from World War II rationing because the rations that you got in the Second World War were, were not Untradable, but what what you would be getting under this scheme is a tradable ration. So if you're a low emitter, if you don't, perhaps if you don't drive very much, if you've got a very well insulated house, if you use efficient appliances, you'd have some spare emissions rights left, and so you could sell those on the national market to people who had. Um, higher emissions, and so who needed to buy extra emissions rights to emit at a higher level. And so that there would be a market in emissions rights, and so individuals would be carbon traders. A
1: number of details for something like this. What about somebody who has, say, three kids, as opposed to somebody who has no kids, and, and they, they drive them to the soccer match and all that sort of thing? One adult, one set of emissions, doesn't matter how many kids you have?
9: That's the really good question you ask. I think for some people, the idea that every adult gets the same quantity of emissions rights is very appealing. But as you say, when you you think about it further, some rather awkward questions keep coming up. Well, what happens if someone lives in a very cold part of the country where they need more fuel for heating? And if they need more fuel, they, they produce more emissions. I think there are two ways of approaching it. Either you go for the commons argument and say, well, because we all share the atmosphere, everybody owns it equally, Therefore, everybody is entitled to emit equally. Perhaps the other argument you can make is well, look, if we had to adjust everybody's allowance for everybody's individual circumstances, then it would be horrifically complicated for government. How do these various
1: schemes keep things equitable between poor people who don't have a lot of money to pay for an extra carbon tax or emission right and rich people who certainly could well afford such a thing?
9: Generally speaking, poor people emit much less than rich people. So under this scheme, everybody, if you like, gets an average quantity of emissions rights. But generally speaking, less well-off people emit at a below average level, whereas more well-off people emit at an above average level. So if you like, it's a scheme that's friendly to those on lower incomes. As long as they don't have to drive very far to get to that poor-paying job. Well, you know, I've been very careful to say in my previous answer that generally people on lower incomes emit at lower levels. But of course, even at a given income, people's emissions vary quite considerably. So, so that, I, mean, I think that tells us two things. One is that a scheme like this can't work in isolation and that there needs to be supporting measures to deal with those people on low incomes who have high emissions. I mean, the second thing it tells us is that it's a problem for any scheme that's going to tackle greenhouse gas emissions. Um, Any scheme that you use to reduce emissions has to be friendly to those lower-income families who have higher emissions.
1: Richard Starkey is a research fellow with the Tyndall Centre at the University of Manchester in England. Thank you so much, Mr. Starkey. Real pleasure. Happy driving. I hope you have the quotas for it.
9: (laughs) Thank you very much.
1: Popular Science magazine says Portland, Oregon is the greenest city in America with San Francisco close behind. And given Portland's green belt and great public transportation and the fog city's dedication to just about all things green, that's no surprise. But when you look down popsize list of the 50 greenest cities in America, guess who comes in at number 3? Boston, Massachusetts. Now some disclosure here, Boston is my hometown so there's some pride. But let's face it, not so long ago, Boston Harbor reeked of pollution and the main drag through downtown was a rusting, elevated disaster zone, less a road and more a monument to mindless sprawl and congestion. But now, according to popular science, Boston is the greenest city on the eastern seaboard. Joining me from City Hall is Jim Hunt, Boston's Chief of Environmental and Energy Services. So Jim, Beantown is a green town.
8: Well, we've been undertaking a number of green strategies throughout the years under Mayor Menino's leadership. Most particularly, uh, we became the first major city in the nation to incorporate green building standards as part of our zoning process. Um, but from renewable energy, energy efficiency, sustainable transportation, uh, we are implementing strategies to green Boston.
1: Now, there was one very green project in Boston that the world knows about, uh, green in terms of a lot of money, and that's the the big dig, what, some $14.5 billion. How green was that deal?
8: Well, uh, one of the outcomes of the Big Dig project uh, was to improve transportation infrastructure but also to reconnect our city to our waterfront and adding over 20 acres of green space through the Rose Kennedy Greenway. So it's a great connection between our Boston Common and the Emerald Necklace Park system down to our uh, waterfront, which we've made great strides in cleaning up the Boston Harbor.
1: Now, as I understand it, Boston has some preliminary plans that would turn thousands of tons of leaves into energy. How would that work?
8: Well, we have an aggressive composting program, a leaf and yard waste collection program, as part of our recycling initiative to divert waste uh, from being landfilled or incinerated and put it back to productive use in our community gardens and our park spaces. Um, But that composting process also off-gasses, greenhouse gases, both methane gas and carbon dioxide. So with the price of oil at over $100 a barrel, gasoline over $3 a gallon, And electricity here in the Northeast at very high costs now seemed the right time to try to capture some of those biogases that come off of our compost and put it back to domestically produced green energy. So Boston in this
1: ranks above such green places as Oakland, California, Berkeley, California, Seattle. Uh, These are cities with great green reputations. How did Boston get on this
8: list? Well, I think because of our dense development here in the city and our efficient use of energy and materials, uh, as well as the new strategies that we've been implementing from renewable energy, energy efficiency, recycling, and innovative programs like our composting to biogas generator.
1: Jim Hunt, what would you have Boston do to move up this scale uh, next year, perhaps be number two or even number one on the scale of the greenest city in America?
8: Well, there are different shades of green, and Boston has a long way to go, frankly, and we have ambitious plans, particularly in the area of energy efficiency. We need to bring the leadership that the city has been able to do on our own buildings out to our private residential folks. Also in the area of waste management, we can always do better and recycle more, and we have programs geared at doing that. Lastly, uh, any city can improve on transportation. We have to address single occupancy vehicle use uh, into our cities that not only contribute to global warming, but can exacerbate respiratory ailments like asthma. And so to the extent that we can make investments in mass transit, in intermodal connections to biking and pedestrian connections. Those are things that we're working on to become uh, even greener. Jim Hunt is
1: the Chief of Environmental and Energy Services for the City of Boston.
8: Thanks, Jim. All right. Take care.
1: Boston comes in number three on Popular Sciences' list of America's greenest cities. At the top, Portland, Oregon, then San Francisco. For the rest of the list, go to our website, LOE.org.
5: Right now I'm imagining the public gardens The public gardens by where the swan boats are And by the entrance that goes up to Beacon Street
1: And just ahead, why those that go down to the sea in ships Might find there's a lot missing
10: Next thing you notice is there aren't any fish in the area. So in all of our surveys in 06, we did not see any fish in this zone. Then you notice the piles and piles of Dungeness crab carcasses on the seafloor. Amongst them are uh, sea worms that have come out from the bottom and are just flapping in the the currents. Uh, Some of these majestic anemones, white, about two feet tall, starting to slump over from lack of oxygen. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
4: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And now, a few words from our listeners. A couple of weeks ago, we asked you if you could come up with better terms than global warming and climate change. You certainly had some ideas.
2: Yeah, about the topic of the climate
10: change, how it should be cold. I think it should be climate imbalance, which implies some places are going to get much hotter, some places are going to get much colder, but either way we have no way of predicting how that's going to happen.
0: What to call global warming instead of global warming. And from the beginning, I've said we should call it global trauma.
2: The topic of the climate change, how it should be called, well, it should be called climate change. Human consumption, climate disruption. Human consumption, climate disruption.
1: Your emails also think global. There was global life systems instability and global climate disruption, global climate damage and global climate meltdown. One writer suggests global temperature destabilization, noting that, quote, it's harder to say and spell, but more descriptive. Also pretty hard to say is this offering, anthropogenic climate disruption. And still, the phones kept ringing off the hook.
9: In our household, when we run into difficulties with the terms global warming or climate change, we resort to a more technical term, epifluid acceleration. How about we call it global abuse?
0: The new suggestion for what we're calling how we're trashing our planet would be global dumping.
2: I heard a good one. It sounds sounds right to me. Uh, carbon infusion, deadly carbon infusion.
1: Many thanks to all who took the time to call and write, including Ian Quirk, Anita Schnee, Martin Slavinsky, Emile Merritt, Bonnie Bishop, Jack Sayak, Peter Whale, Terry Watson, and Anna Von Billingen. We're always glad to hear from you. You can call our listener line anytime at 800 218 9988. That's 800 218 9988. Or you can always write to us at Living on Earth, 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. And visit our webpage at LOE.org. That's LOE.org. As winter begins to loosen its grip on the north of the country, the world outdoors becomes increasingly inviting. Commentator Tom Montgomery-Fate loves to comb the beaches of Lake Michigan, and the jewels he finds there reminds him that our resilient earth can turn some of our trash into treasure.
7: Here in the Midwest, the Great Lakes are our ocean, our seashore. For me, it's Lake Michigan, which is about two miles from our farm. Since it's too cold for swimming now, I'm always looking for another reason or excuse to wander the dunes and comb the beaches. My favorite excuse is glass hunting. When I walk the shoreline, I pick up and throw away any sharp, jagged pieces I find which might cut some unsuspecting beach stroller. But what I'm really looking for is what this trash becomes, the treasure of lake glass, those shards tumbled into frosted gems by the rhythm of stone and water. Most of the pieces of lake glass I've found over the years are clear or brown or green. They range in size from a thumbnail to a half dollar. The most valuable pieces are the most worn, pitted, and opaque. The beauty of lake glass stems from its seasoning, from how rough and rounded and cloudy it is. Each piece is a wordless story read with the palm and fingers. Glass can be recycled endlessly, from glass to sand to glass and back again. The fragments of a broken bottle or jar are worn down by the hour and day and decade by rock and sun, by the undertow and riptides, the lateral tug and pull of the waves. The shards of glass, the garbage carelessly tossed on the ground, slowly return to their origin, to granules of sand. The broken bottle becomes the beach again. In time, if undiscovered by someone like me, even the most beautiful pieces of lake glass will also disintegrate back into the sandy beach. This is the miracle of lake glass. The gem maker, the mindless lake, teaches the junk maker, the rational human, how to belong to the cycle of nature, how to heal what we have poisoned, how to live in another kind of time, how to see.
1: Tom Montgomery Fate teaches writing at College of DuPage in Glen Ellyn, Illinois. He's the author of Steady and Trembling, Art, Faith, and Family in an Uncertain World. We like to picture the ocean as teeming with life, with fish and crabs and strange glowing eels, that sort of thing. But in many parts of the world, the ocean is dying. There are currently about 200 dead zones, almost all of them caused by fertilizer or sewage runoff. But one dead zone off the coast of the Pacific Northwest has been expanding over the past few years for causes that are harder to fix. Joining me now is Professor Jack Barth of the College of Oceanic and Atmospheric Sciences at Oregon State University. Professor Barth, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. So the news is that the dead zone off the Pacific Northwest might well be connected to climate change.
10: How and why would that be? Well, we've seen low oxygen or hypoxia in these areas where there are significant marine life die-off, so-called dead zones, we've seen that over the past five or six years, and we think that's unusual on the backdrop of about a 50-year's worth of data. So we're looking towards the cause, and we think there's a hint in the winds and how they're changing and how that affects these uh, dead zones.
1: There are lots of dead zones around the planet. Why would this be different?
10: Well, this one's unusual because it's on an open coastline. It should be flushed regularly. There are no rivers putting nutrients in. That's the cause of most of the hypoxia zones around the world. Well, it's all connected to the winds. The winds blow along the coast. They bring up these deep waters from offshore, right in next to the coast. That fuels these phytoplankton blooms that then decompose and pull the oxygen out of the water. So we can go back to the winds. Are the winds changing? And we know that with climate change, there can be changes in the wind, particularly they can increase in strength. So this whole scenario where we're producing lots of plankton that can decompose, uh, that might be worse uh, as we go into uh, a climate change scenario.
1: Why isn't this, you know, just something that's cyclical, that... uh Every 10 or 20 or maybe every 50 years this happens, the way you get other oscillations in the ocean, like the whole El Niño, La La Niña phenomena.
10: Yeah, we were quite interested in that. There's a big 10-year change out here in the Pacific. And uh, when we first saw this, we said, aha, that's just one of these 10-year swings. But having gone back over that 50-year record, this recent five or six years really is unusual So I can tell you that it's not part of a a decadal or a 10-year oscillation. Whether it's 50 or 100 years, we don't know. What do you see
1: in this dead
10: zone? Well, first thing you notice, there's lots of something called marine snow, this white, flocky material coming down from the surface. That's the plankton falling down that's going to be decomposed and uh, lead to the hypoxia. Next thing you notice is there aren't any fish in the area. So in all of our surveys in 06, we did not see any fish in this zone. Then you notice the piles and piles of Dungeness crab carcasses on the seafloor. Amongst them are uh, sea worms that have come out from the bottom and are just flapping in the the currents. Uh, Some of these majestic anemones, white, about two feet tall, starting to slump over from lack of oxygen. There usually are lots of sea star species Uh, We saw some of those actually um, collapsing from lack of oxygen. So basically this wholesale area of nothing alive and and lots of death.
1: Going over uh, a couple of articles written about your research, uh, there was a story of some fishermen having crabs kind of jumping out of the water there. What's that all about?
10: Yeah, what happens is those that can get away do. And what I saw myself is uh, my son and I, go recreational crabbing. And we were in the bay uh, near the dead zone and catching phenomenal size crabs, uh, sort of dinner plate size, you know, in 15 minutes or less. And those are the crabs that were running in to shore, running into shallow water where there is oxygen. I've also heard reports of small octopi coming up the lines of the fishermen trying to get out of that dead zone near the bottom of the water.
1: And this isn't happening just off the Pacific Northwest. This is elsewhere on the planet.
10: Yeah, we know of two other areas. There's uh, the area off Peru and Chile has a similar uh, hypoxia zone. The one off South Africa and Namibia is quite interesting. They actually get uh, walkouts of lobsters onto the beach, fleeing the the, uh, dead zone in that region.
1: So what an irony this is. The wind blows in too much food for the fish, and actually, if people are in the area, the fish in fleeing uh, the dead zone as as that too much food decays, also they get this huge bounty. So we're getting sort of an inverse signal from nature, the, a lot of nutrient, and over the short term, a lot of seafood.
10: Yeah, that's it, exactly right. If you if you think about this whole process as fueling uh, the healthy ecosystem, there was a balance there, and now somehow we've pushed that a little too far, and Uh, As these dead zones develop, the creatures are fleeing to the edges of those looking for oxygen refuges and concentrating. And we're really not sure what the ripple effect will be. Will there be more subject to to being preyed upon in those areas?
1: Professor Jack Barth uh, teaches at the College of Oceanic and Atmospheric Sciences at Oregon State University. Thanks so much, Jack. You're welcome, Steve. We recently reported on the Ocean Alliance research vessel Odyssey, which travels the world to collect blubber samples from whales. The Odyssey also collects recordings of whales singing, continuing the work that Roger Payne, president of Ocean Alliance, started more than 40 years ago. And Dr. Payne says he's noticed that over the years, the whales have
6: changed their tunes. The sounds of this particular one were recorded in about 1961. They are more beautiful, I think, than any sounds that have been made since. These animals change their songs so that after five years you have a totally different song from what you had before. And that means that as time goes by the song drifts into new territory. What it's in now is it's all right it's interesting and it's quite lovely but it's not this same keening extraordinary cries that just fill your heart as well as the air this is about 10 years later and it is also in exactly the same place same species But now, nothing like this was present in the ones that you heard just a moment ago. The whales slowly accumulated a bunch of differences until they began to sing this song. I think what probably happens is somebody invents a, a new phrase in the song and if it is popular with females because I suspect although I can't prove that that is its principal function then what it would de- do is other males would observe oh my gosh she's doing better than I am and they would go off and copy the same thing to gain the same advantage. If you look at the laws that humans use for their song compositions and you compare them to the laws that humpbacks apparently are using for their compositions, you find great similarities. Just to take some very obvious ones, the song is about the same length as for example a movement of a symphony. They mix about the same degree of percussive, noisy sounds with melodic pure tone sounds. Uh, They also do strange things like doing ABA form, where they make a statement. Now that's one phrase, and the whale repeats its phrase and sort of yodels the second time. Here, I'll show you what I mean. Now, if we had time, we would listen to that whale do many, many iterations of that one theme, and then eventually it would change what it was doing and make something completely different. And it would do that for a while, oh, and then it would change again and do a third and a fourth and a fifth up to nine times in some songs. So it's an interesting, it takes a long time to hear a whale song. You can't rush a whale. They also use rhyme in their songs. That is the same trick that the old troubadours used to do in order to remember epic poems as they included rhyme. It's a mnemonic device, a thing that allows you to help remember what comes next. And now the question to me is, why, how possibly is this the case? There's not a chance that whales were aware of humans or humans were aware of whales, and yet They are using the same tricks. My suspicion is is that the vertebrate brain, whether it's located in the head of a whale or the head of a human being, is entertained by pretty much the same kinds of things. To me, that suggests the following that music is probably older than our species, a lot older than our species, that basically there was a common ancestor to humans and whales, at least when it comes to music, and that these laws got passed through a whole chain of species in both cases and finally have ended up in us, and that these use the same sorts of tricks to gain whatever their final gain is, my suspicion is, to the attraction of a female.
1: Roger Payne, expert interpreter and collector of whale songs and president of the Ocean Alliance. Our story was produced by Bobby Bascom and Bruce Gellerman. Next time on Living on Earth, Saguaro National Park and the hills of Tucson, Arizona, have an uninvited visitor that's threatening to take over. You see that patch over there next to uh, Pima Canyon? grass.
2: You start looking down the mountain, and you start picking out all these little patches, and that's all grass. And eventually, the whole ridge will be grass.
1: Invasion of the Invasives on the next Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a set of musical pipes On a peninsula in San Francisco Bay sits the wave organ. It's an acoustic sculpture. As the waves roll ashore, the organ's 25 pipes create these musical tones. Catherine Girardot recorded the water music, and it's included in the Earthier CD, Day of Sound. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Jackson Brader, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young. Our interns are Annie Gia and Margaret Asano. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Alison Liererstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
4: PAX World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com.
7: PRI Public Radio International.